Uh, today's reading comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 26. Um, before I read, um, let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word, especially through Jesus. We pray that today you will open our minds and hearts to your word, and that we will not only listen, but hear your word and put it into practice. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, it can be found on pages 1053 of the Blue Church Bibles. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you do these things? They said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also beated and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of which this, that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked from way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, "'Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right.' and that you do not show partially, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Uh, I spent three days this week in Melbourne at a conference for ministers, and at the end of the conference, it was Friday afternoon, uh, I went to the, I think it's called the Sky Bus, it leaves from Spencer Street in Melbourne and goes out to Tullamarine Airport. So this conference had had about 400 ministers at it, we all sort of rolled down the hill to uh, Spencer Street and were piling on these buses because many, many of us were heading back into state. I got on with about four other guys I knew, 
and there were only four seats, five seats at the back of the bus left. In the corner, there was a young woman. She was in her mid-twenties. And these five ministers of the gospel came and sat around her. <laughs> and uh, we got talking to her. Her name, I'll, I'll tell you, her name is Jill. It wasn't her real name, but Jill, sitting in the corner. Uh, she was from London and spending a few months here in Australia. And we asked her lots of questions about what she did. She was a nurse, you know, doing temp work while she was here in Australia. And eventually she asked us what we did, these middle-aged or older men surrounding her at the back of the bus. And we said, we're, we're all church ministers, at which point her eyes just got marginally larger in size. <laughs> Here I am trapped in a corner of the bus by these guys, you know. But, but it actually led to a really good conversation about spiritual things and God and how you could know him. And she said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I believe there's something out there, but I'm sort of into peaceful religions like Buddhism. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but that seems to suit me. And she said, I like uh, the idea of a God who doesn't tell me what to do, you know, because that doesn't sound right. And so I think, you know... I'll, and I think what you're saying to us is, stand back and don't try and tell me what you should think about God. I think that's what was going on. But as I reflected on Jill and her comments, I thought it, it is a bit like that uh, in our culture. We have that sort of smorgasbord approach to God where you pick and choose the one that works for you. It's like sort of going clothes shopping, you know, find the, the, the designer fit that matches your style and wear that one. Now, to some, some degree, I think that's the right approach in the sense that as I reflect on this church starting off, what we want to be is a place where people can engage safely in thinking through who Jesus is. Do you know what I mean? Like where people will feel like they can come to a church like this and not be threatened by anything except the message of the gospel, you know, the, the truth about Jesus, and that people will engage them and uh, be willing to talk and to open up those sort of issues. We want it to be a safe place to explore a dangerous message. No question about that. And yet on the other hand, it occurred to me that there's a great danger with trying to tell God what he can be like and trying to tell God that we can only take him on board on our terms. The bit of the Bible we come to today uh, Luke chapter 20, it's all about that sort of interaction with people trying to hem Jesus into a corner and Jesus saying, you can't do it. It's just not on. Let me refresh you. The section of the Bible we're in is called the travel narrative. It's chapters 9 through 19. Jesus uh, starts out heading towards Jerusalem where he's going to die, uh, rise again from the dead. And that's, that's the sort of bookends of what we're talking about. So in chapter 9, verse 51, we're told Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer on a cross. He must die. He must rise from the dead. He must do that so that people can be forgiven. He must do it so that people can have peace with God. Must. When we get to chapter 19, verse 41, the bit just before the part that was read today, we're told that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over this city. He is filled with compassion and love and grief 
for the people of this city, wandering, uh, living in opposition to God. No, not the faintest idea really about how to have a relationship with God. But just a few verses later, we also read that he's also angry, full of compassion, but angry as well. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and he began driving out those who were selling. He is furious because people have set up their markets in a place where people are meant to be able to come to discover God. And instead, there are those there who are trying to rip them off for their own fiscal advantage. And that just drives Jesus nuts at this point. He weeps with compassion, but he's angry enough to physically kick people out of the temple. If your Jesus doesn't cater for both, then you haven't got a full-orbed picture of who Jesus is and the nature of what God is like. And so what Jesus does here in chapter 20 is he teaches us why we can't have a designer God. Uh, He won't allow them and he won't allow us to tell him what he can be like. So I want to explore that with you for just a few minutes. It'd be great to have that passage open in front of you. It's uh, page 1053, be really good to be following on. There's an outline of where I'm heading in the leaflet, just a basic one if that's a useful thing if you're a note taker. Or if you just get lost and you want to know where I've gone, then that'll, that'll help you as we go along. What authority? When we start chapter 20, the, we have the religious heavy hitters who decide to take Jesus on. Right? So there's that sort of confrontation. Verse 1, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, they came up to Jesus and they said, tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Now remember, he's in the temple, meant to be the very meeting place between God and people. And these guys come up and say, Jesus, what are you, what are you doing here? What do you think? What, you know, what sort of authority? It's like police breaking into Buckingham Palace, rushing into the Queen's bedroom and saying, what are you doing here? You know, like, yeah, he's exactly where he should be, in his father's house. You know, Jesus at home. But of course, there's a deeper question going on here. These people are saying to Jesus, what right, what gives you the right to tell us how to treat God? Now that I think is exactly the same underlying question that operates generally within our culture. What gives anyone the right to tell me what I should think about God? Or how I should live? Or... How does that work? That same sort of question. And Jesus responds with a brilliant question of his own. Verses 3 and 4. He says, tell me, you know, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, uh, who had a, a baptism of repentance. Jesus says, tell me, from God or from men? So these religious heavy hitters, they go, hmm, just wait a second. They go over and huddle in a corner, have a bit of a chat among themselves, you know. If we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? If we say it's just a man-made thing, the people who think John was a prophet will stone us to death. We're not really going to win here, are we? (laughs) You know, we're we're in trouble, and they realise it. So they refuse to answer Jesus. Now here's the question. 
is Jesus just playing a bit of a game with them? You know, you ask me a question, I'll ask you a tougher question. You know, we'll just keep trading questions. You know, I'm cleverer than you are. I don't think that's what's going on. Jesus is not avoiding the problem. He's trying to take us to the very heart of the issue. You see, the the religious guys, they come with what on the surface of it seems like a reasonable question. But in the end, it's just a cover. It's just just a mask. They're religious, but they don't want a God who can tell them who he is and what they should do. That's not the God they want. And so what Jesus does is he exposes their heart. Ultimately, they're not concerned about truth or God. They're actually more self-interested in constructing a religious world that works for them. Now, I think that that is human nature. That is, we operate largely out of self-interest rather than from God's perspective. I think that's the nature of fallen humanity. Uh, I spend quite a bit of my week in the city at a site on North Terrace, a church site, and often people drive past looking for a park and they think, there's a church site. That's a convenient spot to park, you know, because it's close to the shops and run them all, so they come in and they park. I'll, if I happen to be around, uh, I'll go up to them and, and just say, look, you probably don't realise it's private property. There's a lot of people who come here all the time. And so unless you're here on church business, it'd be better to park immediately next door at a car park that's always got space and that, that'd work better. People often get really angry with me, <laughs> really angry. And they say, well, it's a church. You should be here so I can park my car. It's public property after all, isn't it? And what gives you the right to tell me not to park here? And I'm thinking, this just feels all wrong, you know? <laughs> like, you're the sort of person who's broken into our property effectively to park here, and I, I'm on the back foot. Now, I want to be gracious. Like, I don't want them to go away thinking church ministers are really nasty people. But at the same time, there's that sense of it's convenient for me to park here, so I'm parking here. You know, and I don't really care what you say, I'm still going to park here. <laughs> that sort of approach. Now, I reckon that actually is the way we treat God commonly. And the Bible talks about us treating God that way, like the convenient free parking God. You're there for my purposes, and I'll tell you what you can be like. So tell me, how should God respond when people treat him that way because Jesus is confronting these religious guys how should God respond often uh, when people park their cars on the site in town I'll have explained why it's actually not appropriate from the park there and they'll eventually say look I'm just going to be here a few hours and don't worry about it and off they go they actually will just stay and just ignore everything I've said to them now when that happens, just to, you know, I'll let you know in a secret, I feel quite frustrated and angry. Right? And I then have to process that. So often when I see people parking these days, I don't even bother talking to them because I think it's just going to make me frustrated and angry so I don't bother anymore, you know, that sort of thing. Now, if I feel that way about something as trivial as a car park, 
How should God feel and treat those who want to contain him into a box of their own making and tell him what he can be like? How should God respond? So Jesus goes on and tells his last parable in Luke's gospel from verses 9 to 19. As a man who plants a vineyard, lets it out to tenants. Uh, the tenants, the arrangement is they're, they're to give him a percentage of the crop from this vineyard. So when the time comes to collect the percentage of the crop, he sends one of his employees to get, get the stuff. Uh, the tenants see the guy coming, they beat him up, kick him out, no fruit. The master of the vineyard sends three people to do this. Same treatment every time. I mean, it's his entitlement to get a percentage of this crop. They keep beating him up, kicking him out, no crop. So eventually, the master says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll have to respect him. The heir of the property. He turns up. The tenants see him coming and say, well, if you just kill him, problem solved. And so they kill him and cast him out. What should the master, the owner of that vineyard, do? I know what I'd do. I'd nuke them, right? Uh, You know, like I would just wipe them off the face of the planet. That's what I would do. What does God do? Well, it's a story, isn't it? It's actually a story about the way in which God treats people who push him to one side. Ultimately, he sends his own son. Jesus is telling this parable about himself. I am the son who has come into the vineyard. I'm in the very temple, the very heart of God's dwelling with men, yeah, the place, the connecting point. And in due course, I'm about to be killed by people who can't take me, who can't accept who I am. I'll be rejected and cast to one side. That's the way God treats people who reject him. But of course the the story doesn't finish there. What happens to the tenants when they kill the son? Well, Jesus says those, those tenants, they'll be destroyed and the property will be given to others. And there's that quote from Isaiah 5. The stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He is full of compassion. He weeps over this city of lost people. But he's also very, very angry at people who cover up the true character of God and who won't accept God. And if your understanding of God doesn't allow for both aspects of the character of God, you've got a little pocket-sized design of God because you're not allowing God to tell you what he is like. We're not in a position where we can just assess Jesus. He is God and he will tell us what he is like. Vladimir Klitschko, he's the current heavyweight world boxing champion. Uh, if I challenged him to a fight, right, I'd be an absolute idiot. 
<laughs> like, what moron would challenge Vladimir Klitschko to a fight? Um, it's, it's incredibly foolish, isn't it, to take God on and tell him what he can be like. Incredibly foolish. There's no place for consumer God shopping. God tells us the way it will be. Jesus then goes on. We had this next encounter with Jesus about paying taxes. Verse 20, uh, the religious big hitters, uh, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They come to trick Jesus, to catch him out. And they lay what is, I think, a brilliant trap. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, for us, this doesn't seem like such a, a clever question. We don't like paying taxes, but we know it's a reality we have to live with. Jesus' day, first century, it was a much thornier sort of issue. Uh, the Jews lived under Roman occupation, and so they hated the idea of paying taxes to Caesar, uh, they, or paying taxes to the Romans. They saw that as a sort of a betrayal of their national identity, and they really struggled with that sort of idea. If you paid taxes to the Romans, you're effectively saying you're a traitor. But if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he can be arrested for insurrection, you see. So he's caught in one of those cliff sticks. But then he's extraordinary, isn't he? He calls for a coin. Now, I looked at a 50-cent coin before I, I came today. On my coin, on one side, there's a picture of Queen Elizabeth II. Right? In Jesus' day, picture of Caesar. Gets this coin and he says, whose image is on this coin? They say, Caesar's. Verse 25, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. Caesar gets what bears his image. And there's a bit more going on in terms of understanding the nature of idolatry and image and uh, coins in the temple and things like that. But that need not distract us just at the moment. Caesar gets the thing with his image on it. But then Jesus says, but give to God that which has his image image on it. Who bears, what bears the image of God? You do. You're made in the image of God. He is the Lord and creator of the whole universe and the one who has created people. You bear, I bear the image of God. Do you know what that means? We belong to him. See, we don't shop for, for a designer God. We belong to the God who made us. It's the other way around. And Jesus is just profoundly attacking misunderstandings of where we sit in terms of who we are under God and his authority. It's quite extraordinary. Let me just make a couple of observations about what we just read, especially as we think about uh, the launch of a church here at Victor Harbour. A few thoughts. As you go through Luke's Gospel and observe Jesus, what you see is a great array of different responses to him. People who responded to his teaching were amazed by his extraordinary healings and miracles, and you get all those different reactions. 
And it seems to me today that we have similar sorts of reactions to Jesus. In fact, when surveys are done, Jesus is quite a popular person. You know, people like his teachings. That's what they say. I'm not sure they know a lot of them, but do you know what I mean? There's a, he has a positive sort of standing generally in our community, a significant historical figure. But friends, here in Luke 20, we see the Lord of the universe who comes into Jerusalem weeping for lost people. The Lord of the universe who comes into Jerusalem to die because of his love. The Lord of Jerusalem who comes into Jerusalem to die also because of the judgment of God for sin. That's who he is. The Lord who comes. And everyone will actually be assessed on whether they rightly accept him as Lord. God himself, the one who has died for their sins because they don't treat God properly. And the one who ultimately will determine their eternity. That's who he is. Those who reject him, Jesus says they will be crushed. That's a tough truth, isn't it? It's a tough reality. Yet it's so appropriate. He is the Lord of the universe, after all. He gets to make the rules and set the agenda. We don't get to tell him what reality can be like. Friends, as we establish a church here at Victor Harbour, we want it to be a people of compassion and gentleness and grace, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who wept over lost people. But we ought to keep remembering the consequence of people's decision about their relationship with God through Jesus. We're not talking about an option here. We're talking about one essential truth, about how people can have life for eternity. It's a weighty matter. Uh, And we ought to bear that in mind as, as we have a concern for this town. Second thought is this, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, and I take it most of us here this morning are, can I ask you what what limits you place on what it means to follow him? Uh, Jesus says, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. You belong to God. Jesus is not a hobby for disciples. He is it. This is life, living under his authority and serving him with everything we have. There is nothing that's excluded. God pays the price with his own beloved son for us so that we can have a relationship with him. Friends, let's keep encouraging one another to recognise that what we do as we gather and what we do as we disperse As we serve the Lord Jesus, that is all of life, not just a part of it. It's very central. And here's my my final thought as I've been reflecting on this passage, and partially because of um, my experience this week. It seems to me as we think about Victor Harbour, uh, we're surrounded by Jill's. You know, that girl that I met on the bus? Uh, That's the nature of this town. When I was going on that bus trip from Spencer Street out to Tullamarine Airport, uh, 
I asked Jill where she was heading. She said, oh, I'm going to Adelaide. And I said, why are you going to Adelaide? I've got relatives there. Where do your relatives live? Victor Harbour. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm going to be down at Victor Harbour this weekend. Actually, for the next couple of weekends, we're starting a church down at Victor Harbour. I mean, how random is that? Who would have thought it? Nothing random about that. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, here I am, Pastor Adelaide, in Melbourne, travelling on bus, sitting next to a person from London, coming to Adelaide, but with relatives at Victor Harbour, and we're starting a church here in the next week. You know, like, oh, yeah, that'd be an accident, wouldn't it? You know? <laughs> there is no way. And that just came home so powerfully to my mind and my heart. Friends, can I say the Lord, he weeps for Victor Harbour and the people of Victor Harbour. He has a deep compassion and love for the people of this city. And I just want to encourage you to keep remembering that uh, with the the friends and the neighbours, the people you randomly connect with uh, week by week and day by day. Uh, the Lord of the universe. There are no accidents at his hand. There are no you know, coincidences. There are only God incidences. You know, as the Lord of the universe rules the whole world and he rules at Victor Harbour and he rules in terms of the activities of this church and he is ruling because he weeps with compassion for the people of this town who do not yet know him. Uh, be encouraged that that is the reality and keep it in mind uh, in your activities day by day in these coming days, these coming weeks and these coming months. Jesus, he isn't pocket-sized. He won't allow us to tell him what he can be like. He is who he is. He's the Lord, uh, the one who has died to save us, the one who's risen from the dead and who has authority over life and death, and the one who will return to wrap up the history of this world. It all centres on him. It's a very secure place to be when you're his follower, I think. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, we have a wonderful snapshot of the Lord Jesus here, uh, one who doesn't brook rubbish, um, and yet who is full of compassion, one who has deep love uh, for people, yet recognises our sin, one who willingly gives his life on the cross so that we can be forgiven and is raised to life so that we can have life, and yet who also says that unless we allow him to be Lord, the one who he really is, then we risk eternity without him and judgment. Father, we pray that you'll help us to, even in our limited way, just have some insight into who you are, to trust you, and to allow you to keep shaping our minds and hearts with the knowledge of what you're about and your purposes. Father, we pray that for this church, that it will be a church centred on you, on your word, a church that allows you to tell us who you are, what you're like, and therefore the implications for ourselves. Father, we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.